a podcast where we sit down with everyday Americans and hear their extraordinary stories. I'm your host, Deborah Drucker. Come along with me as we discuss those things that we were always told not to talk about. Politics, religion, and more. I promise you'll be inspired and have your mind opened by the end of this episode. Well, it was kind of cold that night. She stood alone on the balcony Yeah, she could hear the cars roll by Out on 441 Like waves crashing on the beach Hello everyone and welcome to Deborah Craddock. Today we will be getting up close and personal with Kelly Houston. Kelly is a manager in the skateboarding industry, a former cannabis cultivator, a clean water activist, an eternal optimist, and a world traveler. We are going to find out what makes this American woman the enthusiastic person that she is. How are you doing today, Kelly? I'm happy. I'm, I'm grateful. And I'm going to start from the start, which is where I usually start, which is where are you originally from? And originally from uh, a Central Valley town in California called Merced. And who'd you grow up with in Merced? I was born with my mother and father there. My grandparents lived there as well. Um, Aunts, cousins, it was kind of the family mecca at that time in 1970. My parents got divorced and I ended up living between Southern California and back to Merced uh, between the ages of like two years old up till 18 years old. And did you have siblings? I do have one brother. Uh, He's seven years older than me. Um, Even though we're pretty far apart in age, I I would say we're pretty close. He's a good guy. And what was that home life like for you? Well, in my mind, I'd like to say it was awesome. I mean, I had a single mom. Um, I always felt very loved. Uh, As a young girl, I thought my mom was basically my best friend. Um, and But it was a typical divorced situation. My family owned a popular local restaurant in Merced. And so my mom being a single mom, I, I, I like to say I was kind of raised in a restaurant because she would drop me off at, you know, after school, like four or five o'clock. And I would help the people at the restaurant to, you know, get the get the table settings ready and the napkins and the fill up the ketchup bottles and wrap up the potatoes to go in the oven. So I ended up just spending a lot of time as a young girl in the family restaurant. And that was, that was fun for me. And you're so social. You must've met so many great people. It was a blast. I loved it. So many interesting and diverse people. Were politics discussed or did politics play any role in your home growing up? My entire family were lifelong Republicans, generational Republicans, you know, um, they would take me, I remember my father taking me to Reagan rallies, you know. Everyone I knew was Republican. You know, we we were at the country club. Everybody was just, that's just what it was. I, I didn't really understand at the age that I was the difference between the parties. I, I wasn't paying attention. 
but you know, we all have that past perspective now to go back and, and it, it's interesting to think about. But yeah, it was a very traditional, very conservative Republican family. How did you arrive at your political perspective? I was raised only knowing the Republican side of things. But as a young girl, I didn't really know what that meant. I wasn't paying attention to the economy and, you know, policies. Um, But I just knew the terminology. I knew the players in the field, right, just by hearing conversations. And then fast forward to being 18 years old, and I made an extreme choice to run off with a very rebellious, amazing young man from Merced and ended up raising, you know, a family with him. We purposely chose to isolate ourselves in a very extreme way from the entires of society. With the man you ran off with. Right, which is my ex-husband. Did we want to mention that he was a man of color? Yes, he was a man of color. Um, He was half African-American, half Japanese. He was drop-dead sexy. He was genius. And he was a absolute pure rebel. Was that sexual energy, is that what drew you to him mostly? Or was it just that he was such a rebel and so different from where you came? I think it was the combination of the whole package. You know, he was gorgeous. Um... He was very smart. He was intimidating. And there was something about him that was very challenging to me. And I had that typical bad boy syndrome, which, you know, in hindsight, I, you know, is not a healthy trait to have as a young girl. I know it is common. Um, I think people talk about that more now. So that's good. He was different. And I was very curious. And there was something that about his differences that just fascinated me with him. And when you say he was intimidating, did you grow up with a domineering father? No. Okay, so this was something completely outside of your norm. Completely. I was always a leader. I was always the leader in the classroom. I was, you know, class president. I was going to be the chair of the committee. I was going to be, I was always kind of a bossy leader role because that's just my personality. I'm, I'm an extrovert. I'm very confident. There was something about him that I felt like he was more dominant than me. And I was like, wow, it just, it was like, it was, I don't know if it was a challenge or it was just fascinating me or just actually just excited me that he was that much more. He was someone that actually could maybe boss me around. Because I was always bossy. So I want to get back to when, you know, leading up to the time that you meet your husband, because I know a lot happens after you meet and you run off with him. Um, Did you have any uh, religious affiliation in your house? Uh, I was baptized Catholic. Um, I wasn't really encouraged to learn all of, like, the teachings of the Bible. My parents were not religious people. I think they were just following a tradition Right. So So, you were untethered from religion. Yes. Adami Mm -hmm. was the man that you met, the young man that you met in middle school. And Mm -hmm. at which point did you run off with him? Uh, Well, I had to wait till I was 18. Okay. And then you kind of fled the family. Did they approve or disapprove? Uh, Well, I snuck off in the sense that I went off to college. 
Um, and with them not knowing that he was going to be in my life. And as soon as they found out that he was in my life, yeah, I was disowned by my father. So did you struggle with guilt then and want to remedy it with your family? Or did you just want to say, oh, well, I'm in love and this is what I'm doing? Yeah, Uh, 18-year-old girl in love. I tell parents nowadays, do do not tell a teenage girl that they cannot you know, see this young man because it just made me want to go that much faster to a Damie. So your rebellious self found your rebellious partner and you guys get together and take it from when you go to college. What happens from there? When my family found out that he was a part of my life at UC Santa Cruz, my father said, if he's going to be there, we, you are going to be cut off. So I only made it through one semester at UC Santa Cruz. And from there, um, Adami and I ended up moving in together. And it was a home that had, it was on like 20 acres or something, a lot of oak trees. It did have electricity at this time when we moved in, but no running water. So we used to get water from the neighbor's house. Um, They would allow us to bring buckets over and bring water into the house. But yeah, I mean, it was very rustic. That was our first home. Um, then when we got pregnant with, uh, our first son, we, uh, Adami had decided he did not want his children to be raised in America. Adami and I developed a philosophy that we called politrix. So at that time we were not conservatives. We were not liberals. We were anti-politics. We were politrix. We said, we don't care what side of the aisle you're on, you're all full of it and um, you're all puppets and we want nothing to do with it because we don't even abide by the rules of society. We abide by the rules of the most high. So we became this like, you know, uh, eccentric kind of like, uh, we kind of became what we considered the chosen ones. You're now pregnant with your first child. And where do you go from there? When I found out that I was pregnant with our first son, we decided to move to Hawaii. Um, It just so happens that Adami was born in Hawaii himself. And even though it was still America, he just wanted to be out of, you know, continental states. So, um, yeah, we moved to Hawaii, which is where our first son was born. And so while you're in Hawaii, is he still in the underground cannabis business there? Yes, And you're his cannabis cultivation assistant. Yes. (laughs) And is this uh, garnering a lot of income for you guys? Actually, at the time, for the age that we were, I would say yes. We were doing very well for ourselves. So he was okay with capitalism, but he was anti-government. At which point do you guys decide you're going to have a full-blown family? Don't you have five children? We were of the mindset that was just pure naturalists. So I have never taken birth control a day in my life. Um, And that's just what happens. We were just uh, open to, you know, the mercy of God and what God was going to give us. And so that's how I ended up with five children. And in your history, I understand that you birthed all of your own children. Did that start with your firstborn? Yes. So you never had a child in a hospital or with a doctor? Correct. And was that just mandated by 
your husband at the time or was that something that you agreed with him on? I agreed. And the story behind that is here we are, we're very young. I think I'm 19 years old, 20, maybe 1920. We're in Hawaii and we wanted to use a midwife in Hawaii for the birth of our first son. She was an elderly Japanese woman and, uh, our insurance did not, she didn't accept insurance, so we couldn't afford her. So he says to her, hey, do you think we can do this by ourselves? And she says, yeah, I think you can. She gave us specific instructions on supplies to get and where to get them and gave us a couple of few very key tips. And I will say that the advice that she gave us, along with just, you know, maybe the youth of my body and, you know, just, I was just blessed to have a a baby birthing body, I guess. Um, (laughs) So I never had one complication, which Mm -hmm. is, I'm very grateful for because it's, you know, obviously it's a high risk situation. And I really want to know, so you're by yourself, you're going into labor and how does this process work? Is Adami helping you at all or is he assisting in the birth or is this all just you're about to have a baby and, and you just do it all alone? The, the process of labor is so intense that my instinct was to go be alone. I needed to be alone. I didn't want anyone touching me. I didn't want anyone talking to me, asking me questions. I just needed to be alone. And the way I approached it was like, I call it the heaviest meditation you could ever attempt. Because at least for me, being alone helped me focus. So every time that I would feel a contraction come on, instead of resisting and screaming because of the pain, I would give it a little extra push. And I could actually feel it was that isolation of, of being by myself that allowed me to focus on that. And then we would always have um, my birthing stool set up in the common area. And when I knew that I was getting ready to crown, the baby was getting ready to crown, I would go, I would call Adami and I would get into position on my birthing stool. And um, at that point, um, he would be the one that would catch the baby. Oh my gosh. Um, I did have our second son was born in the sack, which was kind of a rare um, occurrence. So when he was born, <laughs> and Jamie's like, oh my God, he's in a bubble. What do I do? <laughs> I'm like, pop it. Wow. And then, yeah. Amazing. That was the only complication and it was nothing that was life-threatening. And I know you have these kids every two years and while you're, you know, you're, you're this wife and, and you're becoming this mother, you're moving around. So tell us about that. So you're in Hawaii and you have your first child. Then what happens? From there, uh, the launching of the family was kind of a mission to find our own, like, private back to Eden um, type of homestead where we wanted to raise our family um, in a very holistic and, I'm going to say, cultural uh, environment. Um, we were devout Rastafarians. So a lot of people don't understand that Rastafarianism is an actual religion. They think of Bob Marley, One Love, Happy, Reggae Music, which is 
which is, um, you know, a part of the culture, but there is actually a doctrine that goes along with it. And so our mission for the kids was to raise them in the most purest. Um, we kind of wanted this whole like back to Eden mentality where we wanted them to be exposed to living in more rural, simple uh, environments. And, um, but you know what? Hawaii was too American for a dame anyway. So, um, so we, here's we an American all, boy who's just a, he's, he's no longer in love with America or he just, yeah, he's, he, you know, because of the religious doctrine, he kind of had an anti-American uh, stance. The religious Rastafarian mm -hmm. doctrine? Mm -hmm. Okay. And so now you're accepting this new faith into your life. How much do you know about the Rastafarian faith at the time where you just jump in with a Damien? Go for it. I was coming with a lot of the spiritual background of just Christianity. And he was coming with this whole African-American historical roots story, a cultural story, and... That's kind of what Rastafarianism is. It's a combination of the African diaspora, African cultural heritage, you know, the lineage and the storyline and the history behind it. It was the combination of this African historical heritage and Christianity that the combination between Adami and I and this religion it, it just... It, it, it aligned. It, it aligned for us. It wow. melted together very well. Nice. Yeah. So you're in Hawaii. You're leaving Hawaii. How many kids do you have now at this point? Just the one? Uh, pregnant with the second. Okay. Yes. And where do you flee to? We always um, would bounce back to Merced, California, because that is where Damie's mother lived. Uh, my family, I was completely estranged from. My father had legally disowned me. Um, my mother, we just weren't speaking um, at all. And so we would go to Adami's mother's home in Merced. Okay. And from and there, we were planning on our next move. Was that really hard for you? Somehow I compartmentalized it. Okay. I was so high on my own horse. Right. You know, I thought I and was wrong. And, and everybody, love. yeah, I was an idealist. I, you know, I was right and everyone else was wrong. You know, am I like that today? No. But I was a hard-headed, rebellious young girl, and, you know, that's part of my journey. Okay, so <laughs> so you're in Merced, you're regrouping, and you do what from there? Where do you go? Uh, our second son was actually born in Merced, okay. um, same town I was born in. But um, in your home, and you birth them yourself. Yes, correct. Um, that is where uh, our... Third and fourth sons were born in Davis. Okay, so you have the first one in Hawaii, the second one in Merced, the third and fourth in Davis. Mm -hmm. And your last one is your little girl, right? Mm -hmm. So where does your... Let's, let's lay it out for the listeners. You've got four boys, and then you finally receive your gift of a little girl. Mm -hmm. And where is your daughter born? Um... It, it, she was born in a rough part of town, let's just say. It's called Oak Park in Sacramento. So I read somewhere that you ended up in Puerto Rico. Yeah, so think of it that California, or at this time it was Davis, became our home base. Um, through the fortune of underground cannabis cultivation, we were able to purchase a home in Davis. 
And so we kept that home, but we always were seeking where we really wanted to be, which was not in America. And so that's what led us to um, the Fiji Islands. So when we had four children, um, we did move to Fiji um, and we're planning to live there. It's actually the only reason that we got legally married, because in order to be a resident in the Fiji Islands, you have to have a mar marriage license. Mm. Um, and so uh, I got married. We got legally married. Our position was we didn't need the government to tell us we were married. So that's the reason that we were not legally married. Um, but uh, we, we moved to Fiji with the four boys. And Aisha, our fifth child and only girl, was supposed to be born in Fiji. But by the time it got close to her to be born, we'd kind of had a difficult time over there. Um, it was very hard to get residency. We'd gotten some strange flu. It became quite challenging. Adami got some sort of crazy infection from the reef. And so we just said, let's just go back to California. And so we ended up in this ghetto neighborhood in Oak Park, Sacramento. I mean, and that's where Aisha was born. And that's where she this was born. This little princess that we know today. Yes. I mean, it was it was a sketchy little area. I mean, we heard gunshots. We had things stolen from the home. And, you know, typical Adami style, we were had a cultivation set up in the basement. We actually decided that it was not safe for us to be there with these five kids uh, in this neighborhood with a bunch of marijuana in the basement. So we moved out and moved into our motorhome. It sounds like a lot of these things are driven from his desire to control. It sounds like keeping you in a faith where you couldn't expose your hair, you had to cover your head, you had to be the the little wife at home, basically. Mm -hmm. Is that what it, I'm hearing it was kind of like? You didn't have much independence? I was completely subservient. Where do you think this sense of ultimate control comes from in this man that you were married to? I've gone through quite a bit of therapy to try to unwind some of my own psychological damage that I, you know, came out of this relationship with. The control piece is usually based on insecurity. Um, you know, they're afraid that they're going to be abandoned or I really don't know exactly, but there, there was a lot of narcissism, a lot of control. And the word narcissism is used a lot today. Um, I think a lot of us have, could, if we are willing to admit, we all might have a little bit of narcissistic traits in it. Um, but he was a textbook narcissist. And the religion and the doctrine was a vehicle that made that control come from a you know, higher cause of serving God rather than us feeling like we were serving him. Right. And religion is, if used inappropriately, it tends to be used for control. You, you can see that he's controlling already, but you're still madly in love with him through the fifth child still. And then what happens? Well, the sad thing about it was beyond the control, there was something about him that I spent 20-something years trying to get him to like me, to tell me I did a good job, to make me feel like he approved of me. Nothing was ever good enough for him. 
And so when you're dealing with a partner like that, um, for me, I rose to the challenge. So everything that I did, I, I just wanted to excel at. You know, I didn't just make breakfast every morning. It was like elaborate. I didn't just have children for him. I had them with like the most strength that I've ever had to channel in my life because I always wanted to be told that I was doing a good job. And I never got that, Um, which is sad. I was so deep in love that it was just natural for me to act that way. You know, I didn't realize what an unhealthy situation I was in until I got out of it. Now, you know, fortunately, I I talk to young girls, obviously my daughter. Now everybody talks about, you know, emotional health, psychological health. It's, I love that. I love this generation that they're willing to talk about uncomfortable things. Because in the 70s, 80s, not so much. I mean, it was starting to go there, but do you feel that in this country, there's enough support for mental health and well-being? I think they're actually, the sport is there. Getting to the support, I think, is very challenging. And a lot of people that need the support, from what I know, maybe this is just firsthand experience, there usually aren't people that have like private insurance. They're, they're usually at the mercy of public assistance or some sort of you know, low-budget insurance. And it's very challenging to get to the help that we need. Nigel Houston, some of you may have heard of him. He's one of the world's most renowned street skateboarders. We're going to get to how, from this very oppressive father, she builds a life with these kids and raises a star in the family. Take it from there, Kelly. So the the bridge between Davis and Puerto Rico happens to be skateboarding. Um, So... While we're in Davis, um, Adami was a skateboarder when he was in high school, just for fun. Um, it kind of went along with his rebellious, you know, uh, reputation. And he started to build ramps at this house that we had now purchased. And with the kids, that was just great fun for them, you know. So I, they would get up, they'd have their breakfast, they'd do their homeschooling curriculum. When they're done with their curriculum, they got to go out and skate. It became very much a family activity. And then we ended up enrolling the kids in an amateur skateboarding league that they competed in once a month. Um, they did very well, undefeated first year. So uh, Nija and Abby were really good at competing. Um, they just blew it out the door the first year. And that's when sponsors started to be interested. And what ended up happening is we purchased an, an existing indoor skateboard park about 15 minutes outside of Davis in this old warehouse. And it became the training grounds for the boys and our family business, which, by the way, hope the statute of limitations is over to take me to jail. But it was a great cash business when you're an underground marijuana grower. Right. Yeah. So I that was one of my roles. And did Adami coach any of these other children? Um. Well, just I wouldn't say coach, but you know they saw him as a good, great example. Right. He enjoyed skating with them, and we'd have little skate parties once a month, and you know it was it was a lot of fun. Actually, it was the first time that my children actually had friends. Yeah. Were they all very social? The two eldest were yes. Jemai and Abby were social. We still had the control in the sense that all of the social activity happened 
under our roof. It's not like they were running off and allowed to go to the movies with these other kids or go to their houses. It all happened in our building. Were you allowed to have friends? Um, I did have one friend. Um, she was another Rasta lady who also had five children, and it was so wonderful to have her. And what happens then? You said that sponsors are starting to take notice. and So we started getting into contractual partnerships with the sponsors, which meant money. So now the boys are being paid, and they were going on tours around the world for skating and competing around the world. And so one of the places that they went to for a skate contest was in Puerto Rico. Anna Damey comes back from Puerto Rico and says, I have found it. I have found the perfect place for us. It wasn't Hawaii, too American. It wasn't Fiji, too difficult as an American. It was Puerto Rico. It was this perfect gray zone because it was America, but not really. <laughs> yeah, he convinced me. Uh, that we should go there. And honestly, I didn't want to go. It was like we were doing well. Our little skate business was doing well. The kids were happy. They had their little friends that would skate with them after school. I thought we were really in a good spot. Um, but I gave in to um, his wishes, and we ended up moving to Puerto Rico. We specialized in indoor growing, which is very much about climate control, you know, insect control, CO2 control. You can control all the elements that produce an amazing top shelf product, right? Because it's been just babied and curated. Um, when you go into outdoor growing, you are at the mercy of the elements. And that in a tropical location is very challenging. There's too much moisture. They're going to mildew. There's too many insects. It's actually much easier to grow marijuana in the middle of, you know, the Central Valley of California. So when we first go there, we rented a home in a in an actual very nice upscale gated community where there was professional families living in there. And the reason why is because at this time, Nigel and Adami were traveling a lot for skating. And Adami didn't want to leave me in an unfamiliar like neighborhood where we didn't quite know if it was going to be safe for me to be there alone with the kids. So we were in this gated community and our goal was to stay there in Dorado until we found our dream property, which we ended up finding about a year later. Um, and we purchased a 26 acre farm in the middle of the island, very isolated, drive up a long country road, go across a couple private bridges that are gated in order to just get onto the property. Um, for him, it was like he had found his nirvana. It was uh, very idyllic, but extremely isolated. Mm -hmm. So at this time, um, the, the two oldest are now uh, teenagers. Now they have nobody but each other again. Yes. And for skateboarding, it's not ideal to be a, a street skater and be in the middle of 26 acres on a tropical farm. Like it's all dirt and mud <laughs> and rocks and water. There's no concrete. Um, so that became, everything just became a little bit more challenging. Um, but, you know, Damien would still take them down to San Juan, the capital city, and they would still film and trying to replicate what they were doing in California, but it wasn't the same. And... The sponsors at this time started to catch on. Uh, we tried to keep it from them that we had moved outside of California. Uh, we had actually um, rerouted the paychecks to go to his mother's address. But 
you know, the isolation just got more intense and the sponsors started to get really uncomfortable with it. They were complaining, saying, hey, Nigel used to be on the cover of magazines, like, you know, a few times a year. And now we can't even get him to show up for a photo shoot for our catalog. Like, what's going on? So it started to become a threat that Nigel was going to start losing his sponsorships. My role as mom was very separated from the business role that was taking place in, between Adami and the skate industry. So at this juncture, you're not involved? No, I was not involved at all with the skateboarding business. One of his larger and long-term sponsors ended up figuring out how to reach me directly and basically gave me the shot call that, hey, you know, this is starting to become a mismanageable situation. Um, if we can't get Nigel present for what we're paying him for, um, we're gonna have to terminate the relationship. And so that put me in a situation where I had to then go to a Damien and tell him they might, you know, terminate Nigel's contract if we don't start spending more time getting him out to California more. And the rage that that brought out in him, number one, they reached out to me behind his back and he did not like that. Number two, they're questioning him. You don't not do that. Okay. Not okay. And, you know, here's Nigel. He is the most talented phenom skater on the planet. And Adami just had so much confidence in Nigel's talent that I think he actually used it as his advantage to do what he wanted to do. Because none of us wanted to be on the farm. That's where he wanted to be. That was his dream. It was his world. We were just living in it. But, uh, he builds, he go, works so hard to build this career with his son, Nigel, and then he wants to tear it down because he's no longer in control. He's not a compromiser. It's my way or the highway on steroids. He would rather just do his own thing. So when they were threatening to cut Nigel off, he's just kind of like, oh, well, we'll just do our own thing. Okay. And that's and then it got complicated because, um, you know, there were some altercations with the older boys and their father that um, physical abuse. Mm -hmm. And that just came, I think, out of, you know, here we are isolated with a 15 year old, almost 16 and a 13, 14 year old. And they're frustrated. They have no friends. They have no school. They're helping their dad grow marijuana all day. They're of the age where they're curious and they get caught smoking some of the marijuana down by the river on the farm. And that didn't go over well with Adami. And I was off the property at the time. So when I came back onto the property a couple hours later, I was out doing errands with my daughter. I found that one of my sons was pretty roughed up and the other son had run off into the jungle and was hiding. At that point, it was, the, it was the pinnacle of this all happened within weeks of each other. This is the first time you find physical abuse. I'd seen the, you know, the shoves and the kicks and the slaps and the, and the, and the holds. And I'd seen the, the physical. So the intimidation um, from Adami to myself and to the children was very psychological, very emotional. But it would often present itself physically as well. And it didn't necessarily mean that you were getting, like, you know, punched out. It could just be a grip on your arm that left a bruise. And it was just a way of you knowing, like, 
I better straighten up. You know, I'm not doing I'm I'm not doing what he wants me to do. I'm not saying and these could be things as simple as getting caught listening to um a rap song. Hmm. Wow. So at at what point do you realize that this this is an abusive relationship that you're in and you are witnessing the abuse of your children? Are you so fearful that you can't intervene because then he would turn his abuse on you? Yes. So for myself, I had endured my own physical abuse over the years. Um, he had quite a um, quite a temper, short temper, and the control issue that existed within him was so extreme that if something happened that was against his wishes, um, it put me in a state of fear. And I knew that I was going to then be threatened with some sort of physical, you know, um, punishment. So, but it's crazy to me to think I had such a strong sense of self-love and self-esteem that I have to thank my family for, because I always felt loved. And um, your parents' family, or your my, the kids. family that raised me, right. my mother, my father, my grandparents, my aunties. I always felt so loved that I had a strong sense of self-love, and so the way I navigated through my marriage was I. I, I could take it like there was something about me that I could take it. And I never felt like I, I, I felt the need to fix him. I felt like, oh, this poor person, he he he's not at peace. He doesn't love himself. I want to help him love himself. How am I going to help him love himself? I'm just going to keep loving him. At this time, it had been 20 years, really, okay. since I'd spoken to my either of my parents. Right. In my developmental years as a young child, yeah. I felt loved. That was my strength um, through my marriage. But what happened at this pinnacle moment in Puerto Rico was that I was now witnessing it come out in a very devastating way towards my children. And that was something that I could not allow. So that was then the turning point? That was the turning point. Finally, the light bulb came on and I said to myself, I have to choose between my marriage or my children. And I was still madly in love with a Damien Houston. I didn't want to leave. I asked him if we could compromise. We still owned our home in Davis. And so I asked him, can we just like maybe spend six months there and then six months back here and make the sponsors happy? Let the kids like, you know, maybe have some friends and just can we compromise? And he just wasn't the compromising type. Um, and so at that moment, I called his mother, who was at the time my only friend, and I called her. She was still in Merced, California, and I said, her name is Shizuko, and I said, Shizuko, I, um, I need help. This is a bad situation for the kids. And she was aware of that, and her emphasis on education was very obvious, and, and she was already you know, uncomfortable with the fact that the kids weren't going to school. And so when I called her and said, this is bad for the kids, you know, this is what happened. This is what's happening with Nigel's career. She's the one that helped me figure out um, how to get the airfare and kind of the most gentle way for me to leave the property without it 
appearing that I was leaving. So she helped you with an escape route? She helped me plan the escape. So she understood that her son was abusive? Yes, she did. Okay. And his father was abusive. Oh. Well, they say it comes down comes down the line, right? Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a vicious Let's cycle. Break the chain. So you're planning your getaway now at this point. And what year is that? This is 2008. This was going to happen within weeks. Okay. So it just so happened that there was a trip planned for Adami to take Niger to Barcelona, Spain on a skate tour. And they were scheduled to leave on April 15th. I told Adami that he, if since he was going to Barcelona, we wanted, we wanted a break from the farm. We wanted to go back and visit Davis. And I coined it as a visit. While they were in Barcelona, we were going to go visit Davis. Who was just you and the four kids? Yes. Okay. Me and the other four. So at this point, it's all about Nija's skating career. Yes. Okay. And this was all a mask because I knew I couldn't take Nigel with me. Uh, There was, it would have been so, it would have been a threat to my life. It would have been so traumatic for the children if I were to try to leave with all five kids off of that farm. So I made it seem like we were just leaving for a brief visit while they were in Barcelona. And, um, but he was very upset. He kind of knew, he saw through my ploy. And so at that moment, I felt the threat and I used my children as a shield for the next few weeks. I just was around them all the time because I I, I was scared. Um, And then when it came time to leave... um, Them as a shield or you were shielding them? They were shielding me. Okay. I felt, I knew how angry he was that I was going. Wow. Mm -hmm. I used them to shield me. I couldn't really explain to the kids what was going on because I was also convincing them to believe this ploy that yeah. I had that we were going to go visit. And, you know, in my heart of hearts, it wasn't 100% a ploy. A ploy. I still was trying to convince him to compromise with me. I just thought by maybe me going there, I could just, it would make my argument that much stronger. Um, it did backfire on me, but um, eventually. But um, I couldn't explain to Nija. But there was something that was the silent understood between him and I. Between Nigel and you. So when the morning came that we're leaving for the airport, which was the day before, so it was April 14th, Nigel and Adami are leaving April 15th for Barcelona. I have a car picking us up, a van is picking us up from the farm, and Nigel comes out to say goodbye. And... It was, to this day, it was the saddest moment of my entire life. To be a mother, and you're sitting there with four of your children, looking at the fifth one, they're looking at you, and you feel the energy. They know that I'm leaving. And he's looking at me, and I'm looking at him. And we looked at each other in a way that we both just teared up. And it was, it was silent. And I hugged him, and I told him that I loved him. But it's like we both knew that I had to go. 
And so um, that was tough. That was tough, really tough. So you're, you're, you do take off with the four. Uh-huh. And, and you, you sense that Nigel knew mom's, mom's out of here. Yeah. I think all the kids knew, but we couldn't say it out loud. So they've gone to Spain, and they come back, and it's just the two of them, oh. and you have not yet returned to Puerto Rico. Correct. And is it Damie just going, get back here now, or? No. He was just, his mantra was, those that leave, we don't need. Oh. Oh, yeah. He repeated that over and over. And then what he did is he started to call our youngest child, our only girl, Aisha. He started to call her every day. And say, Aisha, why do you want to be over there in Babylon with mom? Mom wants, mom is, you know, wants us to be with the heathens now and live the heathen lifestyle and this whole, you know, blame and shame thing. Um, And so she endured that, but she was so young and impressionable and also wanted to please her father. And I was still trying to please the father in as crazy as it sounds, I'm still trying to please this man. He convinced me to let her come visit the farm. I allowed her to go back and visit the farm with him uh, in September of the same year. Were you not with afraid ag- that he would abuse her? Well, I wasn't afraid of the abuse. Okay. I did not ever he didn't feel... physically abuse Aisha? No. And I, I never somehow felt scared about that. It was all emotional and psychological. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was still trying to get him to love me and find a compromise for our family. And I knew that he had to come back to California for a, a, an annual skate event, which was always in early October in Lake Forest, California. So him and I made an agreement that if I let him, I should go back to visit the farm, I would meet them down at Lake Forest to retrieve her in early October. Well, what ended up happening is they never came. And I started to panic. And, you know, that's when... You know, I started to realize that I, this was not, there was going to be no compromise. I needed to get off of this dream I had and I needed to take action. And so that's when I figured out how to file for divorce and started to go down that route, which is not what I wanted to do. And so this is when you have this epiphany, this awakening, whatever you want to call it, that this man is never going to be the man you want him to be. Yeah. How do you get Aisha back? How do you get Nijah back? Right. Do you suddenly feel that you don't love him anymore? Well, what happened was now that I'm away from him and I'm having to be more of an independent woman, um, it opened me up to other people. And um, I ended up getting a book. It was about borderline personality disorder. I was like, wow, wow oh my gosh, I think this is what maybe he has. And so I started to see him in a different way. And I started to realize that as much as I wanted to fix him all those years, I really couldn't. And 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 so I kind of just gave up on the marriage part. Um, at the time, I had reunited with my friend who was my friend. She was another Rasta lady. We had both had five children. Right. We reunited, and she just looked at me, and she one day, and she goes, "If you don't file for divorce, you're never going to see those kids again." And I said, "Oh my God, you're so right." And so, I figured out how to do that. Um, I ended up. I didn't file for divorce until July of 2009. So, it had been a while. Do you kind of run back to your parents at all? Do you reach out to them? I need your support. You were right. I made a mistake. Your grandchildren are in peril. Is there 
any support there or you're just going it alone? I did reunite with my family. Um, I reunited with them in September of 2008. Um, My one hippie aunt was the only person that I could remember her phone number. And unfortunately, it was still the same phone number because I didn't know where any of my other family was. And so I called my aunt. She was so happy to hear from me. From there, uh, it led to a family reunion. And when I walked onto my brother's property where my entire family was there to receive me, um, this would have been, I believe it was September or maybe it was October 2008. I was so nervous because I hadn't seen them in 22 years or spoken with them. In fact, my father had knocked on our door in Davis once and a dame answered the door and said, get the F off our property. Wow. I didn't see my dad. But anyways, um, so yeah, I was nervous as I'm approaching my, my brother's property. But when I walked through the gate... I remember feeling this sense of comfort and I remember hugging them and hearing them and smelling them and talking with them. And it just felt like home and it just felt like not a day had skipped. How lovely is that? So fortunate. You know, and so that's the loving strength that carried me through this abusive marriage was the love from these my immediate family. Um, now, support-wise, no. Right. You mean financially? or Yeah. They didn't trust me, I don't think. I think they felt like I was such a wild card in the past that they were all very hesitant uh, to help me in any way. So when it came to filing for the divorce and trying to get through that whole difficult situation, I was completely on my own. How does that reunification go down with Nija and Aisha? Okay, so um, very emotional, but let me let me premise this by saying that when it came to the divorce, I was in a difficult situation. I had no money. I'm dirt poor. Um, I actually went down and applied for welfare. Um, I was denied. And at that moment, I actually, it was probably one of the first political feelings that I had because here I was in America and I was in great need. I didn't have enough money to pay the mortgage on the house. I didn't have enough money to feed the kids. I didn't have a job. I was really destitute. And where's the money for Nyjah going? Well, before I filed for divorce, I was being supported through my mother-in-law was controlling all of the um, sponsorship yeah. money. And she was sending me X amount of dollars every month to pay the mortgage and pay the bills and feed the kids. When I filed for divorce, completely cut off. Okay. In order to get through the divorce, I did the entire thing by myself. I could not afford an attorney. I did every motion, every subpoena, every declaration. I did completely by myself, all the way up through trial of the divorce. But what you were starting to say is how you became more politically aware through this process. In my time of financial desperation, I went down and applied for welfare. And this was in Sacramento County that I went down to the Sacramento County Welfare Office. And I was denied because the welfare system doesn't allow you to own two properties. And I owned a home in Davis. And I didn't realize they knew I owned a property in Puerto Rico. 
Okay, so... So it disqualified me. And I'm sitting there. It was a little Russian, young Russian lady was a social worker. And she tells me that I'm denied. And I'm sitting in front of her. And I just start to cry. Just silently, tears rolling down my face. And I said, oh my gosh. I'm like, I don't know what to do. How am I supposed to feed my kids? And this young woman just cried with me. Wow. We just sat there. She said, I'm so sorry. Well, I just remember thinking of... For the first times, I think that was where politics like directly affected me because I understood that the welfare system was something that is, you know, politically charged and 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 a part of uh, our government policy. And I just remember feeling really frustrated because I'm like, something's not right here. Come on, America. I really need help right now. And I'm not looking for to be on welfare for 10 years. I just need help to get by. I need this bridge, right. you know, to get me to the next um phase of my life and I just wasn't there. I remember feeling that the welfare system was really screwed up and it needed mm. some serious reform. Okay. Um, I'm not anti-welfare. It's just the qualifications of it are very complicated, you know, and, right. and uh, I know it's really hard with millions of people to be able to be so specific. Where do you turn to after your you know, you, you recover from the shock that you can't get welfare. The courts assigned a minor's counsel. And she was a lovely woman. She did not represent me. She did not represent, represent their father. She represented the minor children, which at the time, four of them were still minors. I called her and I said, Raquel, which is her first name. I said, I'm crying. I'm in the parking lot of the welfare office. I said, I don't know what to do. I have no money. I, I don't know how I'm going to feed the kids. I don't know what to do. I'm really desperate. And she says, well, I'm not allowed to give you any money. I'm not allowed to give you any help, but I do need to make sure the kids are fed. She said, will you please meet me at the Costco out here? So I drive my car. I meet her out at the Costco. She's got this big SUV van thing. She takes me into the Costco and she fills her entire car with food. Rice, beans, pastas, staples, cereals. I mean, her entire car. And it was just one of the most beautiful gifts that anyone has ever given me. And it was given to my children, which was indirectly given to me. Um, and it was just, it, it said so much about this woman because she was being 100% ethical but yet she was representing these minor children that were put under her watch. And you had to be going to work. You had to be educating yourself to get a better job. I mean, I'm, I'm, that's what I'm gathering, that you're going to school so you can get a better job. The problem is I hadn't worked since I was 16 years old. So when I left Adami, I the last job I had was at a pizza parlor in 1986. And so I couldn't get a job. I was unemployable. No one wanted to hire me. I even tried to get a job at like uh, being a, a house cleaner in a hotel. No one would hire me. I was willing to do anything. I was willing to clean toilets. No problem. Willing to do anything. Tried to get a job at a car wash. Couldn't get a good job. That's the kind of work I was going for. Anything. Well, yeah, anything. And so um, couldn't get one. So I ended up enrolling in school. Uh, applied for a student loan, got some money from there. And then they, and the school ended up hiring me as a nighttime teacher's assistant for one of the night classes. So then I had a nighttime job at the school. I'm surprised that the man who wanted to have this superstar skateboarding son doesn't come around because isn't Nyjah's career 
snowballing at this point or is it on hold? What's happening? He ended up actually losing all of his sponsors and Adami um, took some of Nigel's earnings and he started their own skateboard company. So back to the control issue, you know, he didn't want the if they were going to kick Nigel off because they were doing it their way out in Puerto Rico, Adami decided he was just going to make his own company. I left the farm in April 2008. Eight, right. I got the kids back. I Nigel, I got back, and Aisha, I got back on May 7th, 2010. Okay. So it had been almost two years. And so this is the in-between where you're... Mm-hmm trying to get welfare and you're denied and then you're going to school and you're working all day. So now you've got just the three boys at home. Right. And I would come home from my jo- my night job and I'd work on my divorce papers because I was doing that by myself. But so no, no representation, right? Right. And so that was the divorce era. I did get Nigel and Aisha back uh, on May 7th, 2010, the happiest day of my life. Was it happy for them or were they a little bit mad at you? Ooh, it was not happy. Um, Adami kind of made a mistake. He brought Nigel into the courtroom, and Nigel was 15, and I think Adami came in with the uh, belief that Nigel was going to be able to speak his own mind. As a 15-year-old, the judge will often listen to the young, the minors, what they want. Do you want to live with mom or dad? Well, it was so obvious that this was an abusive situation, um, financially abusive, emotionally abusive, physically abusive, that um, the judge just saw right through that. And the judge called Nija out from the row in the back of the courtroom and said, Nija, is it true that you haven't seen your mom in two years? And he says, well, I think I saw her one time at a, up in the stands at a skate contest. And the judge says, well, you're going home with your mom today. Huh. And Aisha wasn't in the courtroom. She was still young. So she was at her grandmother Shizuko's house a couple hours away. So the judge then orders Nija uh, to go home with me, and the bailiff came outside to where the car was parked, and the bailiff stood there while Adami very painfully, slowly transferred some of Nija's personal things into my car. Nija was looked like he was very uncomfortable between his two parents. The dad was clearly very upset that he was losing. I was clearly very nervous about the whole scenario. As we started to drive down the road, just Nigel and I in the car, he's sitting like this with his arms crossed across his chest, head straight forward, looking very stern. And I just looked over at him and I said, oh, well, I guess you're mad at me. And he just kind of looked over at me and gave me this little smirk. And I was like, all right. And I kind of understood that he had to play that role. It was all about avoiding getting Adami upset. So it was a it was a role play. Okay, there was a lot of emotional damage between all of us because to come from that type of autonomous family environment where we have very little outside influence of friends or school or community to then be out here with limited ability to communicate it became a very, it's like its like a bomb had gone off and I was dealing with all of these fragmented individuals that were damaged, but I didn't even, I was surviving. I didn't have access to psychological care. I didn't even understand what was really wrong with the kids at this point. And I'm trying to figure out what to do with Nigel's career. So um, at first the, the courts did not give me 
um, the role of, of being Nigel's manager. We were court ordered to have a professional management firm, which we did um, for him. But that didn't work out so well because he was 15 years old and we found that he just kept calling me for everything. The courts gave me a year to prove that um, I had the best financial intentions for Nigel. And so after a year of showing them accounting of how the money was being used, um, I was given the role to be his manager. And this is where you build a business behind the number one ranked street skater, which he's at this time still the number one ranked street skater. And he's 15. That's when I put on my business cap and said, we are going to do this. And um, got him incorporated, got a whole... Uh, I had some colleagues that... Um, were former sponsors of NIJA in the skate industry that, that came to be very sensitive to my situation. They gave me good advice on corporate attorneys and um, agents and things of that nature. So I ended up building a team, a supporting team for NIJA's career. Um, but when I took NIJA to his first contest, his father had not paid his income taxes for two years. And so NIJA owed over $150,000 to the IRS. And so we go to this first event and, you know, we're going in, in, in the negative financially and Nigel wins the first event and he won $150,000. Perfect. And then I have to explain to him that, well, you know, we got to pay that to the government and that he did not like that, especially at that age. He didn't quite understand that. Um, but the, it was became a difficult um, set of circumstances for me because I'm trying to manage him as a single mom with three minor kids in my household. And so the Southern California is the Mecca of our industry. And so it became difficult for me to like fly down with him for meetings. And he was a minor. So I, I had to go everywhere with him. He couldn't even sign documents on his own. And so that was the catalyst that moved me to Laguna Beach, okay. which is where I still live today. Um, I needed to be in Southern California, and I had some old family friends that lived here that took me in into their guest house. Nice. Okay, so you've relocated. Your life is looking good. The mm -hmm. kids are doing well. And the father is never to be seen again? Yeah. I mean, the level of the control freak that he was, it was like all or nothing. Because when I was granted physical and legal custody of the kids, he just... I mean, he tried to visit a couple times, but he didn't like the circumstances because, you know, he'd pick them up and have them for a few hours and bring them back to my house. And I think it was probably too uncomfortable for him. And so he just left. He was MIA. We didn't know where he was, didn't have a phone number, never called anybody. It was just, it was sad. Interesting, though, I would think he'd come back at least, if nothing else, for the money or the fame of his son, you know? Well, ironically, when Nigel turned 18... He did come back. And Nigel says, you know, are you going to apologize for anything in the past? And he said, no. And then Nigel said, oh, well, then, you know, bye. And they've managed to stand on their own without him. Well, it's, it's not that beautiful. I mean, the older boys are quite psychologically and emotionally damaged from it all. And um, there's a big void there. It's, it's challenging for me. Um, and they were taught um, that therapy is for weak men. Right. There is and a so, stigma still, huh? Yeah. They refuse to get any type of professional help. You are one of the most loving, 
resilient, beautiful women. And I think they're very fortunate to have you. And I think that they're going to find their way. And that's my hope for you and your family. So let's talk about what happens after you get under the, the fist of this man. I see you you finally vote in an election, right? Mm-hmm. So you vote in 2008, uh, and you're 38 years old at this point. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to guess maybe you voted for Obama. The fact that there was, I had the opportunity to vote for the first colored person to be president, I was very excited about that. I walked in there just feeling like beaming. Um, I would say I was pretty uh, uneducated on the about policy, um, and I was still very much leaning just towards the whole. I was following my instinct that I just thought he was like a beautiful person. Yeah. You know, I, I liked his delivery. Um, so I, I was attracted to him as a leader, Obama. Um, so yeah, I was I was honored to vote for him and I was just so excited that he won. It was a great time to say that was my first vote, was the first, you know, black black president. Okay, so you vote in your first election at 2008, I mean in 2008 at the age of 38. And then I see you're a girl who's been you know, giving birth to babies and cultivating cannabis and fleeing an abusive relationship. I mean, what a story, Kelly. And how you've prevailed is just remarkable. It's an inspiration to so many. And it should be, you know, maybe you should go out and speak to people who are survivors of abuse or people entrapped, you know, entrapped in abusive relationships because somehow you made your way out. And so impressed by that. And then I see that you're raising the kids, you're going to school, you're figuring out how to manage your son's career, which you do beautifully, apparently. You're really coming to your own at this point in life. And then I see that you have your first alcoholic beverage. (laughs) Man, you must have needed a drink. But but you have your first alcoholic beverage at the age of 41. And tell me about this. Are you feeling liberated? Are you feeling you know, independent now. Even though I had all of this confidence and I'm an extrovert and super friendly, I was very socially awkward. I I didn't really have social norms and I didn't quite understand just, I just wasn't, it was just something I just wasn't practicing, you know? So here I am at 40 years old, you know, 41 or 42 or whatever I was, learning how to be social. (laughs) So you love what you're doing. Yes. And you're loving life now. I am. And I'm so glad that you've landed on your feet and you've been doing so well for so many years. I know you are such an optimist. What drives that optimism? You know what it is? It's like when when you, when I made that choice to go live that alternative life and I was off the grid and living in isolation under very strict circumstances for 20 something years, no friends, no just simple joys that I most people take for granted here. What it has done to me is I wake up every single day with overwhelming sense of gratitude because I'm just so excited. I'm so excited for the day. I'm so excited to have my friends. I'm so excited to just have my life and just enjoy it. And so I just walk around. I just have this overwhelming sense of gratitude in my heart. And um, it, it affects the way I'm, I love having people in my life. 
neighbors, people at the grocery store. Because my nature, the girl that I was born as, was an outgoing extrovert, social butterfly. I took that and I suppressed it for 20-something years. So now I'm free. Now I'm free to be me. And I do not take it for granted. Um, and I just, yeah, I'm a lover of life and a lover of people. So I'm so grateful our paths crossed. I know. I'm so happy. Me too. You bring such happiness when I see you. Thank you, Debbie. And um, it's been a pleasure. And um, I'm honored to be on your podcast. And I'm honored to call you a friend. This episode of Deborah Craddock was hosted by me, Deborah Drucker. It was edited by Juan Sanson and produced by Lee Rocker and Chloe Cassins. Thank you to our engineers, Adam Burt and Hunter McKellar, for making me sound good. Our amazing music was performed by Amy Nelson and Kathy Guthrie of Folk You. Be sure to rate and review this episode wherever you listen to podcasts. For more Deborah Craddock, check out DebraCraddock.com and our Instagram at DebraCraddock. That's D-E-B-O-R-A-H Craddock. Like Democratic. Until next time. Political is personal, so let's talk about it.